I was talking to our kids at home about this message series that we're embarking on today, hearing from the King of Kings and the music of the King of Pop, and their responses, at least to me, were quite hilarious. Silas, he's our oldest, he's 15, he was absolutely incredulous, like some of you were, when I told him that we were going to be doing a series that had anything to do with Michael Jackson. His quote was, no dad, no Michael Jackson in church. So there's Silas, sort of at one end of the spectrum. Maybe that was some of your view. At the other end of the spectrum uh, were Bailey and Dylan. Bailey is seven and Dylan is five. And they were like, no way, Dad, Michael Jackson in church? That is so cool. Can we dance on the stage when the band does the music? And I was like, no, no dancing. I'm glad you like it, though. That's good. And maybe your response was something like the spectrum that I encountered over at our house. Maybe your spectrum to a sermon series that has anything to do with Michael Jackson falls in one of those extremes. No, Dad. No Michael Jackson in church. Or, cool, Dad, can we dance on the stage, please? Can we do that? But no matter what any of us think, the important question that we're really all asking is why, right? Why, right? Why in the world would a church bring Michael Jackson into a sermon series? Aren't the two incongruent? And here's how we answer that. Tickets for Michael Jackson's 50 final curtain call concerts in London sold out in a little over four hours. That's three quarters of a million, 750,000 tickets that sold somewhere between $105 and $1,100 each in just a little over four hours. Unbelievable. Over 10 million tickets were sold to the documentary film This Is It After Jackson Died. Jackson's Thriller album, which you are all well aware of, it released in 1982. It contains classic Jackson hits like Beat It, Billie Jean, of course the title track, Thriller, right, is the best-selling album of all time anywhere. Jackson is also estimated to have sold three-quarters of a million, 750 million albums in total. 750 million albums in total. Which, when you add all of that up, means that Michael Jackson is an enormous cultural icon whose life and music has endeared him to tens of millions of people the world over. With that kind of a following, that kind of interest, that kind of even, dare I say, passion for Michael Jackson, his life, and then the words of the Apostle Paul ringing in our ears from the book of 1 Corinthians, we should then be compelled, actually, as a community of faith to redeem all of the interest around Jackson's life and music. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. And you're wondering what words from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Here's what Paul says. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. And that right there, folks, in my opinion, is where capital C Christianity and the capital C church worldwide has lost its way in modern days. The bulk of the church has not even come close to heeding the words of Paul in seeking to find any kind of common ground for the sake of advancing the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. Instead, quite the opposite has taken place. The majority of the church, capital C church, has bought into a distinctly unbiblical approach to ministry. 
directly counter, actually, to the model Paul himself exercised and even taught, and has gone on to propagate this mentality that it's only our distinctly Christian stuff that matters when it comes to getting the gospel out, that it's only our Christian music that matters. It's our Christian agenda that matters. It's our Christian whatever that matters. But according to Paul, nothing could be further from the truth, actually. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything, Paul said, to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Which means for us as a community of faith called Journey, we care deeply then about the things that our friends and family and neighbors and classmates and co-workers are interested in, whether we agree, like, or approve of it or not. We, like Paul, go their way onto their turf for the sake of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, communicating the good news of Christ. And Paul's model, it's certainly worthy of our best emulation, absolutely. But it doesn't end there. Because see, the ultimate example of this on their turf, go their way approach is the very incarnation of Jesus Christ, isn't it? He was the God of the universe who, for our sake, put on skin, stepped out of heaven, came our way onto our turf at great cost, at very great discomfort to himself, in order that the gospel that saves us might become readily available to all of us, so that we might be able to live in communion, relationship, with the God of the universe, the way that we were intended to live from the very beginning of time. And we ask the question, well, what about the allegations against Jackson for things like child molestation and such? Shouldn't that immediately disqualify him from being a person who we as a church would want any way to identify with? My question uh, is a question in response to that. Should allegations be what defines a person's entire life and career? Should allegations be what define a person's entire life and career. Honestly, I don't know. That means I have absolutely no idea if Jackson did what he is accused of. Neither do any of us, for that matter. God, Jackson's accuser or accusers, and Michael himself knew the answer to that question. Michael took the answer with him to the grave, didn't he? That leaves the accusers and God who truly know what happened. And I, for one, am entirely comfortable with engaging in Michael's music, especially for the sake of the gospel, the good news, while leaving the answer to those questions in the very hands of God himself, where they belong. That is not our turf, and aren't we glad that that is not our turf? And so, here we go. Hearing from the King of Kings and the music of the King of Pop, and this week we're hearing from the King of Kings, we're hearing from God through the Michael Jackson song, Black or White. Lots of you will remember a time in our culture when it was kosher to tell and laugh at ethnic jokes, right? You remember those days, I'm sure. Jokes like this one. A Polak goes into a restaurant and he orders a pizza. When it's delivered to the table, the waiter says, do you want me to slice it into four or eight pieces? The Polak thinks and says, you better make it four. I'm not sure I could finish eight. <laughs> you can laugh. It's okay. You can laugh. How about this one? How many Polacks does it take to pop popcorn? Four. One to shake the pot, one to hold the pot, three to shake the stove. That one's not funny, actually, not at all. And so we, as a culture, began to realize ethnic jokes, 
they're not really funny, are they? And so then our culture said, let's not tell ethnic jokes anymore. And so we transitioned to blonde jokes then, didn't we? <laughs> Remember those? Why doesn't management give blondes coffee breaks? Because it takes too long to retrain them. <laughs> Why do blondes have TGIF written in their shoes? Uh, to remind them, toes go in first. <laughs> what do you call a brunette standing between two blondes? An interpreter. <laughs> and so then the blondes, they rose up and they said, no more blonde jokes, right? And so then uh, they began telling North Dakota jokes. The blondes did. <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of the very serious tension that exists between Montana and North Dakota. It's gone on for a very long time. Years ago, not sure you know this, it actually broke out into open conflict. And the North Dakotans actually began to throw sticks of dynamite across the border into Montana, out there on the eastern plains of Montana. And the Montanans, well, they were undaunted, of course. They would walk right up to the dynamite, pick it up, light it, and throw it right back. Two guys from Fargo, they were working for the public works department. One would dig a hole, the other would follow behind, filling the hole in. They worked up one side of the street, down the other side of the street, moved to the next street, working furiously all day long without rest. One guy digging a hole, the other guy coming behind, filling it in. There was an onlooker, I'm sure it was a guy from Montana, who was amazed at these guys' hard work. But he had no idea what they were doing. So he asked the hole digger, look, I'm thoroughly impressed with your work ethic, the effort you two are putting into your work, but I don't get it. Why do you dig a hole only to have your partner follow behind and fill it in? The hole digger, he wipes the sweat off of his brow and he says, I, I know it probably looks a bit funny because normally we're a three-man team, but today the guy who plants the trees called in sick. And it's okay to laugh at those, right? Because we all know someone who is of Polish descent who enjoys a little good-natured ribbing about their ethnicity, right? We all know a blonde or two who enjoy a good blonde joke now and again. Some blondes, they even poke fun at themselves, don't they? And even the North Dakota jokes, they're quite funny, and they get our friends who are from North Dakota laughing. And because we all know somebody who are regularly made fun of because of their ethnic descent, the color of their hair, the state that they hail from, and appear to take it all in stride, it all of a sudden gets very, very confusing for us when we see and we hear about people freaking out and picking up sticks and bottles and rocks and start throwing them when they're called names. Spick, kike, nigger, chink, gook, kraut, wop, and bushnigger even. But you see, it's one thing to be kitted in good nature about your mental horsepower, which is really what Polak and Blonde and North Dakota jokes are all about, isn't it? And it's quite another to be called by emotionally charged and incendiary names that are intentionally used as weapons of disdain, disgust, and hatred, isn't it? Words and names that are intended to devalue and demean and dehumanize people at the very level of their soul. Those kinds of names cross all kinds of boundaries that lead to a certain kind of soul damage inside of people who are their target that you really have to experience to be able to understand, don't you? 
A gal named Miriam Edelman, she's an African-American author, she writes about that level of soul damage that exists because of bigotry and racism and hatred and prejudice. She writes about the kind of internal pain and hurt that goes on and on and on. She says, you know, it is utterly exhausting to be black in America. There's no respite or escape from your badge of color. It's exhausting to be a black student on a white campus or to be a black employee in a white institution where some people automatically assume that you're not as smart as whites. There's that constant burden you see to prove that you're as smart, as honest, as interesting, or as motivated as any other person in the place. And she says it just tires you out after a while. Edelman gets it, doesn't she? She understands that level of soul damage that comes from racism. And some of you, just a few of you who are a part of the Journey Church family, you get it. You understand it too. Most of us, though, we don't have a clue. We can't get it. We can't grasp in any way what it feels like to be discriminated against, prejudiced against, even hated. And we say stuff, because we're from Montana, we say stuff like, look, we're from Montana, right? We're different out here. We don't carry those sorts of attitudes around here. We're not racist or prejudiced or bigoted around here. But we forget in a hurry, don't we, about our often subtle attitudes about our Native American population, don't we? We forget in a huge hurry. I heard about a certain college professor, an exercise that he does with his incoming class of almost exclusively white students every year. The professor stands up in front of his lecture hall and he says to his students on the very first day of the semester, suppose an official comes to your door tonight and informs you that a terrible and tragic mistake has been made. The mistake is that you were supposed to have been born and raised Native American but you weren't. Now, says the official, that situation, that circumstance must be rectified. So tonight, at the stroke of midnight, you're going to turn into a Native American. You're going to have all of the same inner qualities and characteristics that you have right now, but for the rest of your life, you're going to be a Native American. The professor offers one last comment. He says, the official who informs you of this situation says, look, the company that made this mistake with your racial identity is very willing to offer you compensatory damages for this little oversight. So whatever you think is appropriate, appropriate compensation for the damage that's been done to you, is just fine with us. All you got to do is name your price. The professor dismisses the class with a homework assignment. He says, come back to our next session in two days with a yearly figure written on a piece of paper that you feel is due and just compensation for having to live the rest of your life as a Native American. And you know what? After two days of pondering, these supposedly non-discriminatory, non-biased, non-bigoted, open-minded white students ask for an average of $1 million a year in compensatory damages for having to live the rest of their lives as a Native American, at which point the professor says, I rest my case. I rest my case. You see, if those students would have asked for nothing, it would have sent a very strong signal that race and skin color is not an issue in our society. But when in the minds of white college students, the average damage request is for $1 million a year to spend the rest of your life as a Native American, that suggests that race and color are very much issues in our culture. This week I read the following quote. All of us weigh a hundred and some pounds, but it's the six pounds of skin on all of us that makes all the difference in the world. The six pounds of skin. But does it really matter what color your 
skin is? Does it really matter what color your skin is? Listen to this, please. Should the most prominent lyrics in the whole of that song, it don't matter if you're black or white, be more true than inside the church, right? But we see time and time and time again that racism and bigotry and hatred and prejudice permeates even the capital C worldwide church. I heard the tragic story this week of a pastor. He got a letter from an African-American family who is part of the church he leads the letter said, our five-year-old daughter walked up to a little girl in her Sunday school class last Sunday and asked her if she wanted to play. 
the little girl turned to her and answered her saying, oh no, I don't play with black people. And we say like, oh, come on. It was just a little kid. She was just being a little kid. We try to excuse it. But the problem, you see, is that five-year-olds don't just arrive at those sorts of conclusions without someone at home, mom, dad, brother, sister, grandmother, grandfather, you name it, instilling that level of conviction in them, do they? She didn't just wake up one day and arrive at that on her own. That came from outside of her. That came from someone else. Very likely it came from the same person, the same people who brought that little girl to church and were likely sitting in the sanctuary of that church that day. And look at what Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28. Here's what he writes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Jackson's lyrics, especially in this song, have the distinctive ring of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, is likely the greatest Christ follower who has ever lived. Paul says, look, all of these superficial delineations of rich and poor and educated and uneducated and successful and not so successful and athletic and non-athletic and black and white and man and woman are to be left at the door, especially the door of the church, because we are a family, folks. We're a family. But the very distinctive stain of sin affects every last one of us. None of us are off the sin hook and is actually the source and the cause of our bigotry and our prejudice and our racism, even those of us who are a part of the church. There's not a nice way to say it. Our bigotry and our racism and our hatred is caused by nothing more and nothing less than our depravity, our sin. And our sin is that southbound gravitational pull that exists inside of all of us that seeks in the context of bigotry and racism and hatred to label and exclude and demean and damage at the level of the soul certain groups of people based on their ethnicity for the sole reason that we have the power to do it that we can, that we can. There is something that lurks so evil inside of all of us that causes us to long to be superior, bigger, stronger, smarter, more on the inside, that for the sake of being all those things, superior and bigger and stronger and smarter, more on the inside, is perfectly willing to put other people in the place of being inferior, smaller, weaker, dumber, and more on the outside, right? C.S. Lewis he gives a name to it. He calls it the quest for the inner ring. And the inner ring is humanity's depraved desire to set ourselves and set our circle of in friends, only our circle of in friends, up in a kind of exclusive club that derives sick and sinful pleasure by keeping other people out and keeping other people down. But according to God's word, that's sin, plain and simple, that we're talking about that drives our bigotry and drives our prejudice and drives our racism. It is nothing else than sin. And so you're like, oh, that's fine, Brian. Nice of you to paint the picture so dramatically of our problem. But what's the solution? What's the remedy? Get this. It is nothing short of a heart transformation. It is nothing short of a complete and entire transformation of our hearts. I could stand on this stage and I could talk until I was blue in the face about how we should all think about and treat people who are of different racial backgrounds than us. But that will not have any impact on our actual behavior, see. 
because our bigotry and our racism and our prejudice, any of our sin, for that matter, will only exist in the rearview mirror of our lives after we have a complete heart transformation that comes when we've confessed our sin, like bigotry, like prejudice, like racism, repented for how we've treated people in the past, people who are different from us especially, and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And said, God, I'm going your way. I'm done going my way. All you have to do is take a cursory read through the biblical books, books like Galatians and Romans and James, to see that God Almighty holds all people in the very highest of regard. And that God himself is utterly unaffected by human beings' color and ethnicity. And that actually, the diversity that exists in the midst of the human race is a delight and honor to God. Red, yellow, black, white are all precious in his sight. And it's a personal and only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that causes us to see people differently than we ever have, to see people the way God sees people. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that causes the externals not to matter to us anymore. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that causes the six pounds of skin not to matter. It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that causes us to look at people, all people, and say, there is someone who is made in the image of the God I love and worship. There is someone for whom Christ himself died. There is a potential brother or sister in the family of God. There is someone with a heart and there is someone with a story and there's someone with a future, a future that I hope and I pray is inside of the family of God. You see, what's absolutely true beyond the shadow of any doubt is that none of us has ever locked eyes with another human being who does not matter deeply to God. Not a single one of us has ever stared in the face of someone who is not an image bearer, an image carrier, an image reflector of the God who loves you and to whom you matter so incredibly much. None of us has ever shaken hands with someone that Christ did not die on the cross for. Every single person you ever meet or have met has value and dignity and worth in the eyes of God himself and should have the exact same measure of value and dignity and worth in our eyes. And that kind of a transformation in how we see people, it will not just come about because we decide one day that we want it to. We will not just pull our bootstraps up on that deal and say, yep, I'm gonna see people the way God wants me to from here on out. Something must happen first at the very level of our soul, the very level of our heart, and it must be a dramatic something. And that dramatic something is nothing other than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. And the question then becomes, has that happened at the level of your heart? A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The lyrics of Jackson's song say, I said, if you're thinking of being my brother, it don't matter if you're black or white. And in the book of 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 in the sacred text, here's what the Bible says. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. That means, you see, that racism and prejudice, bigotry, can't occupy the same space that the love of God 
occupies. And when you shake out that verse, when any of us open our hearts to God, when we cross the line of faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the love of Christ permeates and penetrates our heart. That means we begin to experience that heart renewal. Our heart is in the process of being softened and transformed and melted and cleansed and purified and all of that by the love that comes through the Holy Spirit of God. And where that love exists, hatred and bigotry and prejudice cannot exist. They cannot occupy the same space. And Galatians 5.22 and 23 is a listing of the fruits of the Spirit. The actual outward workings of what happens when the love of God begins to penetrate our hearts and change our lives. And look at Galatians 5.22, what the very first fruit of the Spirit is. This matters. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the very first fruit that the Holy, of, Holy Spirit of God gets to work producing in our life once we step across the line of faith in Him. It's love that He goes to work on first. The priority of the Holy Spirit is to get about producing love the minute that He comes into our life. See? Which means that if our hearts have been touched and changed and transformed by the love of Christ, then we're going to see people differently. All people, especially people who are different than us. We're going to hold them in very high regard. We're going to see them as God sees them, not like we see them apart from God. That six pounds of skin is going to not matter in the least to us. Red and yellow, black and white. They are all precious in God's sight, in my sight, in our sight, when the love of God permeates and penetrates our hearts and lives because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're black and it doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're purple. It doesn't matter. Why don't you take your things, if you would, and I just invite you to set them aside. And I just invite you to get quiet with the Lord and move into a posture of prayer and listening to Him. Just get real quiet with the Lord, if you would. What's the Lord saying to you in this time? What things is the Lord inviting you to think on and be about with Him? ask you just to stay parked in this posture of prayer and listening to God and I'm going to sort of talk over the top of all of that if I can and the first things first have you made that choice to step into relationship with the God of the universe through his son Jesus Christ if not what in the world is keeping you from that today Jesus loves you came to earth for the purpose of bringing you back to God. He came to earth for the purpose of restoring you to the friendship with God that you were made for from the beginning of time. 
the very thing you were created and designed. And if that's the desire of your heart today, I just invite you to pray with me right where you're sitting. A prayer that goes something like this. God, I want and I need a relationship with you. And you don't have to say it aloud. Just say it in the quietness of your heart. God, I want and need a relationship with you. Come into my life. Please forgive me. I get it, God. I get it that Jesus loved me so much that he died to bring me back to you. And because of that gift, I repent, I turn, I run from my agenda, my path, my way. I'm committed, God, to walk your way for the rest of my days. Help me begin now that new life. Help me begin all it means to live in you and follow you. And that choice to yield your life to Jesus Christ, to make him your savior, is the biggest decision of your whole life. Everything else, everything else pales in compare. And it's so weighty around here, we invite people to tell us when they make that decision, and it's a, not an embarrassing deal. I'm just going to invite you to do it with me. It's a me, you, and God thing. I just invite you, if you prayed with me just then, to just lift your hand and make eye contact with me. You can do that right now. And just say, yes, I yielded my life to Jesus Christ today. I stepped into relationship with him. Just make sure I catch your eye if you would, please. Nobody's looking around this room but me. Yeah, right over there. Way to go. Way to go. And back there. Way to go. Life's never the same for you from this point forward, from here on out. And it doesn't matter whether you're new in relationship with Christ or you're just investigating the claims of Christ, trying to figure out if all of this is true, or if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for decades and decades. When it comes to issues of racism and hatred and bigotry and prejudice that causes skin color to matter in how we treat people, I'm inviting and I'm challenging every single one of us to set ourselves on a new course today and how we relate to people of every race to chart a new course from here on out. And maybe racism and prejudice and hatred, it's not even on your radar screen. It's not even part of your existence. It's the furthest thing from your mind. Way to go. Or maybe for you, you tote this stuff and it's very real, very tangible for you. It doesn't matter. The challenge today to all of us is to be the first one in line from here on out to demonstrate that it doesn't matter if you're black and it doesn't matter if you're white. And the way you do that is by reaching out to each other across racial and ethnic lines. Like there's not even a boundary there. You're first in line to go, to befriend, to have conversation with. Because here's what's true. Racial and ethnic walls come down and they come crashing down in a hurry 
on the day we decide to build sincere and lasting cross-racial friendships at school, work, church, neighborhood, it doesn't matter where. Will you be the first in line? Will you go? Will you extend a hand of friendship and fellowship and love to people who are different than you? Will you be the one? God, we're just amazed at who you are, at your power and your majesty and your glory that reigns right here, right now. And we look on the human race and we see the diversity that you created. And God, we're delighted, actually. We're delighted at your creativity. We're delighted that we're not just cookie-cutter clones of each other, photocopies, but that there's uniqueness and beauty and diversity, God. And all of that points to who you are at your very core, God. The infinitely creative, sovereign, beautiful God who sent his son to save us and sent his son to spare us the suffering of a life apart from you, God. And we're stunned that he would do such a thing for us, for me. We who are tainted, we who carry attitudes of hatred and bigotry and prejudice and racism, God. Yet while we were still in all of that stuff, he came to save us. And God, I pray that we would be the first ones in line, extending a hand of friendship and fellowship across lines that shouldn't even exist in the first place. And that this community of people would actually make a dramatic difference in those walls and barriers come crashing down, Father. would be no distinction, that it wouldn't matter to us. But that would matter to our hearts is that every person is a person who you love and care about and died for. And that we would live in that truth, Father. You are the best, God. And it is the best to be your sons and daughters and your children talk about an honor and a privilege. We receive it so gratefully. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. And everyone said, amen. Seems real fitting to wrap our time together today in musical worship. We'll also worship by means of giving today. The ushers will be by in just a moment to receive an offering. Those of you who are not here at the very beginning of the service, I talked about the fact that we're sending a percentage of our total offerings from this whole weekend to World Vision to be used on the ground in Haiti where it's desperately needed as three million folks' lives have utterly been ravaged. And so I just invite you to give very generously and we'll give very generously to World Vision and we'll be a part of actually making a difference on the ground in the lives of desperate people and times.